but uh, God speaks in all kinds of ways. So this morning, we'll let the cat out of the bag. We're going to be talking about truth. We're going to use the parable of the weeds. Uh, the next uh, few weeks, we'll uh, be using parables from the Bible. I'm going to be speaking on the parable of the weeds. But just as an introduction, uh, there's a commodity, and a commodity is something that meets our needs, something that is wanted, and something that can be traded in. And the commodity that's currently being questioned every day in our culture, in the news and in our minds, and it's so very impactful for our lives, the culture and the world, and that commodity is truth. Truth, uh, the term fake news, I think it can be credited to former President Donald Trump, I'm not sure, but fake news, it permeates the culture now. And as a matter of fact, I was listening to the, the news broadcast just about a week and a half ago, and, and, and I was shocked because the, uh, the anchor, they did an interview with a person, and then the anchor was commenting on it and said, you know, this is what they've said, and if it is true. And that, that stopped me. You used to hear the news, and that was true. Not anymore. And that news anchor has hit the nail on the head for our culture. What's true? Is it true? There's a battle that's going on right now in our culture, whether you are aware of it or whether you're not aware of it, and that battle is for the truth. And it's being fought on two fronts. One is the spiritual side, and the other is right here in and amongst us in our culture. There is a battle for the truth. What is truth? And it's a very present struggle and it has such great impact for us. Now, when Pastor Sean was doing his uh, series on the Bible, he said something that was really poignant and important, and I'm gonna repeat it, because this thing called truth, it's very impactful for us. Scripture should define our world view, not culture and the world define our world view. Scripture. Some people are going to say, yeah, you believe the Bible. I believe something else. We're going to take a look at some of that. But truth, it has so much importance to us in our culture. Something that meets a need, something that's wanted, something that's trading in. But truth, that'll give you meaning, purpose, and fulfillment if you know the truth. So the question, of course, exists. Our culture says it all the time. Is there truth? Is there an absolute, objective, unchanging truth? No spin on it, truth. Yes or no? Rhetorical question, think about it. And in the ongoing struggle that we face in our daily lives about truth, we're always going to run into an intersection, which uh, Pastor Charles Swindoll, who uh, runs the radio program Insight for Daily Living, he's a pastor down in Texas, he puts it this way, there will be always an intersect for us, and that intersect is horizontal or cultural thinking and vertical or theological thinking. And if I do it again, you see it makes the sign of the cross right behind me, very poignant. There is an intersect on the pursuit of truth. So this morning, we're going to look at the parable of the weeds in Matthew chapter 13, 24 to 30. And it's a great pricey. It's a very straightforward message. There's truth. There's truth according to God's word and his ways. 
And then there's the world and the evil one, Satan, who try and give us their versions. And that battle is ongoing. And the parable of the weeds is going to show us the difference. The difference between the truth of God's word and the deception of the world and how they teach us, fueled by Satan and his evil intentions. And he has two main tactics. Two that we're subject to. Number one is lying, and number two is deceit. Lying and deceit. And to reinforce those points, I want to read to you from John chapter 8, verses 43 to 45. It's Christ, and he's speaking to uh, the crowd that's standing around him after a debate with the Pharisees. And he's saying, look, I, I'm here to help you and set you free, and the people are going free. No, no, no. We're not slaves to anyone. We're children of Abraham. We're fine. And Jesus says this. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of all lies. And yet, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. See, there's been a struggle for truth for thousands of years. As a matter of fact, the struggle for truth has been going on. Lie and deception as Satan's tools have been going on since creation. So I'm going to read to you from Genesis 2. And it's verses 16 to 17. And the Lord God said to the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. And now I'm going to move to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. The serpent, it's called the serpent's metaphor. It's for Satan who's rebelled against God, been thrown out of heaven, and he's trying to mess up creation because he wants to take on God. So the serpent said this to the women, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, You may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from that tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Verse 4, I'm going to harp on this. Please listen. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. But God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan uses lies and deception, and there is truth. So now I'm going to read to you the parable, Matthew 13, 24 and 30, about the weeds, and it's about truth. Let me read it. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. And the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? I circled this in my Bible. If you've got the analog version, circle this verse. If you've got uh, 
They're called devices, highlighted. An enemy did this, he replied. There's a battle for the truth. The truth is what God says or what the enemy and culture says. We're going to look at this. Interesting to me is why did Jesus teach in parables? Why did he do it that way? Well, I went to uh, research this from Dr. David Jeremiah, who is a fantastic Bible teacher, and he has a, a program on uh, that you can catch on TV. He's a wonderful Bible teacher. Uh, listen to what he says. In the Bible, parables are short stories about familiar subjects that are used to illustrate a spiritual truth. One, parables illustrate a spiritual truth. He says this further. They provide a framework in which we can understand transcendent truth. Transcendent being of supreme quality, of absolute merit, outside of our real universe, inspired, super rational. Parables, spiritual truth, transcendent truth. And then he finishes with this. In the Bible, parables reveal truth with selectivity. Spiritual truth, transcendent truth, truth with selectivity. And he finishes with this wonderful comment. How can we accurately understand something that we cannot hear or touch? Truth. You can't touch it. You may hear a lot of lies. You hear a lot of truth. It's an incredible way to teach, and it's a word picture. And word pictures have so much value in communicating truth that two of the wisest men and great teachers in the Bible, that being Solomon and Christ, used parables extensively. The Jews were an agrarian culture. They understood what happens when you plant bad seed with good seed and you end up with weeds. They understood this parable. Now just previous to this parable, and it's germane to our topic, is the parable of the sower and the seeds. And in that, that parable gives us a wonderful illustration about two things, how people respond to hearing the gospel and how that can be affected by circumstances and conditions when they hear the gospel. The other is how evil Satan will try and very much so interfere with anyone hearing or receiving the gospel. The good seed, the bad seed, and truth. Well, that parable, Christ read it out or spoke it out and then his disciples come to him and they say, uh, we didn't get it. Could you explain the parable to us? And I'm going to read to you Christ's explanation. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. That's Christ's terminology for himself. He uses it over 10 times in the book of John, the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. Now, to uh, reinforce how important this thing, truth, is, how much we need it, how much of a foundation it is, and I was speaking with uh, Warren after the service because I did not know that's where we were in the New City Catechism. 
but you heard him speak it this morning. What happens to those who don't? I'm going to read to you the end of the parable, and it's going to tell you why truth is so very important to all of us. Christ goes on to explain, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out his kingdom, everything that causes sin in all who do evil. And they will be thrown into the furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Truth, knowing the truth, living by the truth. That's very impactful and very important for each and every one of us. But this thing, truth, people say, I got my own truth. That's your truth. I got my own. In other words, there is no absolute objective standard for truth. <laughs> All right. Sorry, folks. Okay. So that parable throws at us the duality that exists still there. How's that? How's that? It don't, it doesn't. Okay, I'll try once more. How's that, folks? Yes? Thanks, Wayne. All right. There's a duality presented to us in the parable of the weeds. And it's truth, and it's a lie and a deception. That's there. And this question about truth and the impact it has on us isn't just in our culture, although it's becoming more and more prevalent every day, this goes back thousands of years, so I want to read to you an excerpt from the Gospel of John, chapter 18. It says, Christ is brought before Pilate, and the Pharisees want him crucified. And just as a little background, realize that this was an illegal trial with trumped-up charges by people with an intent to eliminate having to hear what Christ was saying, and they didn't want it propagated throughout their country. So, realizing that they can't charge Christ with what they say is blasphemy because the Romans go, we don't care, we get all kinds of gods. That's for you to worry about, not us. So they come up with the idea to call Christ the king. He said he's king, and they know that that will be thought of as sedition to the Romans, so now he could be executed. So they brought that charge. Pilate comes in and he says, so you are a king then? And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king, and in fact, I was born and came into this world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate retorts, what is truth? What is truth? This is some 2,000, 2,500 years ago. In Genesis, we're introduced to the battle for truth. Whether you're a young creationist or an old creationist, that's a long time ago. The battle for truth has been going on. There's a duality that exists in our culture. It's truth, and what is it? So I found this to be very convicting, and I wanted to go and look at it and understand it a bit more and bring that to you, this battle for truth, that, that duality that's shown in the parable of the weeds. So we're going to take some time out here and we're going to talk about truth and logic based on the work of philosophers starting at the time of Plato and working all the way up to now where it's codified and there are four laws of logic and truth. This is from the secular world. 
And here they are, these are the four logics, and then I will expound on this. And the first law is the law of contradiction. A statement cannot be false and true at the same time. Pretty straightforward. It's either true or it's false. It can't be both. The next one, called the law of identity, is a little simplistic, but I give these gentlemen their credit. They've spent a long time thinking about this. If any statement is true, then it's true. If any statement's true, then it's true. Law number two. Law number three, which is a lot like na law, excuse me, number one, but has a little different take on it. So I'm going to read it to you once and then the second time. This is the law of the excluded middle. A is either A or not A. A cannot equal non-A or B non-A. Truth is either true or not true. Truth cannot equal non-truth or be non-truth. It's a lot like law number one. It's truth or it's a lie. It's true or it's false. And the fourth one, the law of rational inference. And that says inference can be made from what is known to what is not known, what is unknown. Let me put that into a, a different framework to explain it to you about the parable of the weeds. For law number one, Christ said he was the son of God, sowed the seed. So he's either the son of God and sowed the seed or he's not. It's true or it's false. You have to make a choice. Is this the truth? Law number one. Law number two, Christ is the son of God. It's true, then it's true. Law one, law two. Law number three gets a little bit more convoluted. Christ is the son of God or not the son of God. He cannot be son of God and just a good teacher and not God, nor can he be a good teacher but not God. He's either Christ, the Son of God, or not. And law number four, rational inference. This one is a challenge for all of you. If you've got some time this summer to do some reading, inference can be made from what is known to what is unknown. And I'm going to talk to you about three uh, authors who wrote some books. And the first is Lee Strobel. He wrote The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, and The Case for Creation. Lee Strobel, background was a reporter uh, in the jurisprudence system. And he understood how the courts worked and laws of proof and evidence. And in uh, discussions with people, he said, no, there is no such thing as Christ. There is no heaven and hell. God does not exist. That's all rubbish. And I'm going to use my stuff of evidence for a court of law. I'm going to put it on trial. I'm going to go and research it all, and I'll prove it to you. And he went off, and he studied and researched and did his work. Well, I guess by now you can understand what conclusion he came to. He wrote the case for Christ, the case for faith, and the case for creation. He became a believer. As an aside, uh, I believe it was in case for the faith. If it's in case for Christ, forgive me. Uh, one of the things that uh, stuck with me is in his research, he found that there is more documentary evidence, physical documentary evidence about the existence of Jesus Christ in Palestine than there is about Julius Caesar. That's just a little mind teaser and aside for you. There's two others. One is Josh McDowell. We're going to hear from him in a moment. He wrote a book called Right from Wrong. 
Josh McDowell was in university studying interesting enough philosophy and logic and truth. And uh, Josh, again, said, this, this stuff about Christ and God and Christianity is rubbish. And I'm going to go and research it, and I'm going to uh, prove it to you. And we'll have a debate, and I'll show you where you are wrong. Well, you can guess his book, Right From Wrong, he did a whole lot of research and work and study, and he ended up becoming a believer. And we will shortly hear from him because Josh McDowell is the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, now known as CRU Ministries. And then the third one, a book that uh, you may find good to read, is Jesus Among Secular Gods, written by Vince Vitale. Vince, on the scientific side, also creation, God. No, I'm sorry. I've got all this stuff in front of me. I'm going to prove it and demonstrate it to you using a scientific method that you're way off base. And again, you can guess the results of his research and outcome. He wrote Jesus Among Secular Gods. He's a very active Christian apologist. He was with uh, Rabbi Zacharias Ministries, which have fallen apart, sadly. But he and his wife still go about uh, doing uh, shows on campuses and uh, in various theaters, expounding on the truth and wonder of Christ and Christianity. So I'm going to read to you just a, an excerpt showing some of this intellectual side, this logical progression, this battle about truth that Josh McDowell does when he's on campus. So he's on a university campus. They put microphones up. They invite the students to come and question. And a student comes up and takes the microphone and says, does it really matter what I believe as long as I believe in something? As long as belief helps you, isn't that all that matters? As long as belief helps you, isn't that all that matters? Keep that in mind, because at the end, there's a wonderful statement by Josh McDowell. So this is how he responds to the student. The idea behind statements such as you've just said is that there is no absolute truth to believe in, and thus the act of believing is all there is. As another aside, you talk to people about truth and not truth and absolute truth, and you say, God is the absolute truth, objective absolute truth. And people will say, uh-uh, there is no such thing as absolute truth. And now we got a dog chasing his tail because saying there is no such thing as an absolute truth is a truth claim of an absolute. And we go round and round and round. Nevertheless, we all believe in something. And Edgar Sheffield Brightman states this. This is his response to the student. A thinker cannot divest himself of real convictions, and it's futile to pose at having none. A thinker cannot divest himself of real convictions, it's futile to pose as having none. Is God God, or is God not God? Address that to yourself. Is it true, or is it not? We all have to make a choice. It impacts us in so many ways. In the here and now, and as Warren read to us this morning, and as that parable, it also impacts us in the hereafter. That's why this truth is so important. He goes on to say this to the student. The idea of finding any truth or meaning to life has escaped modern man. This statement reflects the inability to conceive of something outside of one's self. Nothing outside of what I say matters. I'm the boss of me. I decide what is true, what is not true, what is right, what is wrong. God doesn't tell me I'm my own God. There are no rules by means of which 
we would discover a purpose or a meaning for the universe. He quotes, uh, his name is Hans Reichenbach. He's the rise of scientific philosophy. There are no rules so we can discover a purpose or meaning for the universe. Is that true or is that false? It's quite a statement. Well, Josh McDowell finishes the question, his addressing of the question from the student this way. Unfortunately, this is not the case. Belief will not create fact. Truth is independent of belief. It's transcendent, it's outside. No matter how hard I try, believing something will not make it true. And he gives this example to the student. He said, for example, I may believe with all my heart that it will snow tomorrow, but that doesn't guarantee that it will snow. Or I may believe that my rundown old car is really a Rolls Royce, but my belief won't change the fact that it isn't. And he concludes with this, and it's a challenge for all of us here today. Belief is only as good as the object in which we put our trust. Belief is only as good as the object in which we put our trust. So I want to get to two books of the Bible in this uh, thought of truth, the duality, what's out there. And there are two books of the Bible that pertain very well to this. And the first is Ecclesiastes, and the second is the book of John, which I like to think of as the book of truth. John writes, and truth is a topic all the way through. It's fantastic to read. If you haven't read them recently, I suggest you do. If you're interested on this discussion of truth and you want to dig into it deeper and figure out, well, is this true or is it not, read first Ecclesiastes and then read John. And I will propose it to you this way. Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, shows us a whole lot of the intersection that there is between cultural, horizontal thinking, and vertical theological thinking. And Solomon took it on and he ran into a whole bunch of intersections. So I'm gonna read you rather than dwell so much in the book, we've only got limited time here today. It's a marvelous book. I know the study was done this year in Vernon Rob's group, so it's, it's worth looking at. Do it again. I'm going to read to you from uh, Laggard Smith, who was the uh, editor uh, for the Daily Bible. And this is his introductory comment to the book of Ecclesiastes. Now there's two things I wanna point out. He uses the word teacher. It is written in there that the teacher or coho left. That refers to Solomon. And the other thing is he talks about life under the sun. And that was Solomon's way of saying, I'm taking God out of the equation. We're doing things my way. I'm gonna do it with my own wisdom. And I'm not paying any attention to this God stuff. It's strictly gonna be what I see, what I think, what I wanna do and what I find out. God, you have nothing to do with it. So I'm gonna to read to you Laggard Smith's uh, commentary. When measured against eternity, the brevity of life makes it more important than ever to utilize the present time in the most, here it is again, meaningful way possible. The teacher then considers what there is in this life under the sun that has any real or lasting meaning. And his search is both unproductive and discouraging. None of the things in which man normally puts his trust for happiness and fulfillment can really achieve these goals. In the final analysis, such things as wealth, power, pleasure, popularity, human wisdom, 
are all sheer vanity. Or as is said in the book of Ecclesiastes, depending on your translation, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. As an aside, when I did the, uh, some research on this, it is stated that Solomon was likely the most wealthy, influential, and powerful person in uh, comparison that's ever lived. Even to today's uh, billionaires, Elon Musk and uh, Jeff Bezos, his wealth exceeded them. His influence, his power at that time, it was huge. He could do anything he want. He had so many resources. It was all up to him. And he took God out of the equation and he said, wealth, power, pleasure, popularity, and human wisdom, they're all vanity. They don't have any lasting purpose. Meaning, purpose, and fulfillment, as Solomon found out, couldn't be attained in a life under the sun. He ran into a whole lot of intersection, saying, I'm gonna do it my way. And it didn't bring him meaning, purpose, or fulfillment. Another writer, Sarah Young, she has a devotional book called Jesus Calling, gives this insightful comment about what happened to Solomon. The world's too much with you, my child. Your mind leaps from problem to problem, tangling your thoughts in anxious knots. When you think like that, you leave me out of your worldview and your mind becomes darkened. Though I yearn to help, I will not violate your freedom. Pay attention. I will not violate your freedom. I stand silently in the background of your mind waiting for you to remember that I'm with you. God is the consummate gentleman. He does not force, he does not impose himself. Even though our culture tells us, you know, he's a killjoy throwing lightning bolts and wishes to bring wrath upon you. No, he's the gentleman. He's standing back and saying, you have to make a choice. There's truth and there's a lie. You have to make that choice. He will not force you. He will, however, compel you, if like Solomon, if like Josh, if like Lee Strobel, you start digging into it and looking through. Dr. Jeremiah, wonderful Bible teacher, writes this about Ecclesiastes. Man has tended to make himself the measure of all things, but man's measure is too tiny to comprehend God's majestic vastness. The inability to understand spiritual matters is due to our lack of willingness to receive it. Lack of willingness to receive it. I'm the boss of me, not you, God. It's the lack of willingness to receive it. Well, Solomon, he went through life that way. However, it didn't work out well. And this is his conclusion. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And I want to go back to that fear God. You read the book of 1 John. It says, wait a minute, love's perfect. There's no fear in love. Why is he talking about fear? And I listen to a fantastic series on Ecclesiastes by a pastor named Matt Hainan, who uh, is the senior pastor at a church, I believe it's in Seattle, it's in the Pacific Northwest. He did a series on Ecclesiastes and he explains the use of fear God really well and it's an acronym and I'm just gonna throw this out here for you right now to keep in your mind. It's very uh, insightful. Fear God, F, means faith. 
You put your faith in God. Fear God. E, you develop and experience time with God. Faith in God, experience God. The A, by having your faith placed in God and experiencing God, you develop an awe of God. And the R is once you've placed your faith in God, experience him, put yourself in awe of him, you revere God. Fear God, faith, experience, awe, and reverence. He's a marvelous God. Well, the other book I talked about is the book of John. And we're going to spend the last of this morning looking at some verses from the book of John, the book of truth, and they're really quite so poignant. I'm going to read you from John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of man. The light has shone into the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. That wraps up so much of the battle that's going on in our world for truth right now. Creation, it explains origin, meaning, and destiny. It's all there. The light has shone into the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And it goes back to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. And I gotta say this as an aside. In the beginning is in the beginning of the creation time, not God's beginning. God already here. He's everlasting in our beginning. Next, still, John chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This one is pretty poignant. Out of his fullness, we've all received grace in place of grace already given. Here's the interesting part. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Well, this is going to open up the way for us to know the truth and be spared the consequences of denying the truth. Now, the interesting part to me was law through Moses, grace and truth. The culture is going to tell you that their understanding of God is he's a killjoy. He's full of wrath. He throws down lightning bolts. He punishes you. You either do it my way or it's over. That's not a God of love, but that is a God, a perception of God that is out there. And we're going to have an intersect. And that intersect is right here. Yes, there is law. There is some structure. There are the Ten Commandments that came from Moses. The first four tell us how to relate to God. The fifth tells us how to relate to mom and dad. And the last five tell us how to relate to one another. There is some law there. There is some structure. And we need it. And for an analogy, I'll put it to you this way. I see a lot of vehicles out there. You probably all drove to church today, yes? So... Did you just drive anywhere you wanted? Left side of the road? Right side of the road? Pay no attention to the speed limit? Go through the stop signs? Doesn't matter. I'll just do it my way. Or do we understand and accept from the rules of the road that if we follow them, it makes it beneficial and orderly for all of us to be able to move around? That's what the law, the Ten Commandments are. It's orderly and beneficial so that we can all live on this earth in communion with God and with each other and not break down into, unfortunately, I'm my own boss. That's why grace and truth are so important. So, again, you're driving. 
I'm going to ask you, do you keep the speed limit? Has anybody ever speeded? Oh, come on. I don't see a single. All right. Come on. We've, we've speeded some. Yes. A little coast through the stop sign. Some of those things. You're a lawbreaker. I'm a lawbreaker. Immediately, we are guilty of that sin. We need grace and truth because every one of us, no matter how hard we try, and there's the problem, we're going to break a law. We're going to sin. So it leads me to my next point. And these are two verses, one that is quoted all the time, one that you'll know very well. John 3:16 and 17. John 3:16, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The one I want to harp on today is the next verse. It's John 3:17. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him would be saved. Here's what I want us to understand. And it's an intersection with the world and how they think. With God, pardon comes first. You are pardoned first. With the world, you are guilty. We're putting you away. You'll pay your dues, and then we'll talk to you. God says, nope, pardon comes first. I'll give you a wonderful example again from John. It's in chapter 8. Christ has been in a dialogue with the, the Pharisees, and uh, they flat out don't like him. They want to get rid of him. So they bring to him the woman caught in adultery. And to go quickly, he bends down, writes on the ground. People all leave. It's speculated that what he wrote on the ground were things like lust, greed, the sins that you don't see but that exist. He looks at the woman and the people have all left. Interestingly, if you read this story, it says, from the oldest to the youngest, they slowly drifted away because the older you are, the more you know I have messed up more than once in my life. And they drifted away, and he looks at the woman. In some translation, it uses daughter, which is a very affectionate and familiar term. And he says, woman, where has everyone gone? Does anyone condemn you? And she looked at him and said, no, sir, not one. And listen, Christ looks at her and says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. God puts pardon first. Listen to what I am saying to you, he says. Go and leave your life of sin and you will find meaning, purpose, fulfillment. You will be free. You will be in my realm. And it becomes confusing for the world. Say, pardon first? You don't have to pay? You don't have to do anything? You just get off? You do. It's wonderful. It's God's way. It's grace. It's mercy. Well, I'm going to go on further. John 17, 17, more addressing truth. This is from Christ's high priestly prayer, it's called, and he's praying for his disciples. At that time, they called disciples. Well, by extension, any of you here that are believers and follow a God, you're a disciple. We are all his disciples. And he says this, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So if you want a firm foundation, if you want to know about truth, as I've suggested, read Ecclesiastes and then John. Read the Bible. You're going to find out about truth and what it is. Well, there are two passages left, the most poignant that I believe, 
uh, in my reading uh, and studying here that are important to truth from the book of John. And the first one, and you'll know it as soon as I bring it out, it's, it's John 8, 32. He says, if you hold to my teaching, then you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Two points. It starts with if. Again, God is the consummate gentleman, Christ. He doesn't force you. He says, if. Here's what I'm laying out for you. Here's the truth. This is the way to live. This is how you were designed. It's your choice. I'm not going to force you. But then, if you do, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Again, in context of what he said it, he was talking to the Jewish crowd that was there, and they are incensed. Wait a minute. We're the children of Abraham. We're not, we're not slaves to anyone. We're plenty free. Well, they missed the point, and here's the point. When he says you're free, here's what you're free from. You're free from indecision. You're free from doubt. You're free from anxiety, and you're free from worry because you have a foundation in the truth. Those are important. More important, you're free from the shame and the guilt of sin. And you can walk with your head held high knowing you're forgiven. But most important is that you're indeed free from the guilt of sin, from your speeding or anything else. That's what you're free from. John 8, 32, you are free from shame, the consequences, and the guilt of sin. And the guilt of sin if you don't get on board, at the end of the age, as we read in the parable, you either know the truth and live by it, or you don't. And the consequences are true, and they're real, and very impactful. And I want to see you study, believe, and live by the truth. Well, the final one, and this one is so poignant, and I love it, and you're going to know it as soon as I start. John 14 Verse 6, Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Number one, Jesus is the personification of the truth. It's from him we get the truth. He came to earth. He's the embodiment of it. And from taking him as your Savior and reading and doing what he says, you'll come to understand truth. He's the personification of truth, that God loves us, that God created us for a relationship, and that God pardons us. Pardon came first. Jesus is the author of the truth. He spoke so much of it in the book of John. But in the prophets, through the Old Testament and the New Testament, they are all speaking to the Messiah, Christ, who is to come. He's the author of the truth, where it comes from. And finally, he is the source of the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if we go to him and say, okay, I want to hear from you. Teach me your truth. He will. Get your Bible and read a little. The Spirit will talk to you. He is the source of truth, and you will come to understand that meaning and purpose and fulfillment in this life are available if you trust, obey, and follow the designer and creator who made us. Genesis chapter 1, John chapter 1. Origin, meaning, destiny, creation. It's all there. But it does require a truth. Jesus is the objective, absolute truth. 
or he's not, your choice. But if he is, you're ending up with the blessing of meaning, purpose, and fulfillment. If he isn't, I challenge you to keep on trying because God will open his ways and truth to you. So to close this morning's service, I'd like to pray a very short prayer. It's Psalm 86, it's verse 11, written by King David, a man who himself had lots of opportunity and he, uh, he tried to do things his way and found out it didn't work. And I'd like to close with that prayer for all of us. And it's Psalm 86, 11, and it says this, teach me your ways, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear 